0: From KQED
3: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. If you've been trying to cut back on drinking this month, here's another good reason: Even a little bit of alcohol can harm your health and more than one glass of red wine a night qualifies as excessive drinking if you're a woman. But what's the best way to reduce or eliminate what's become for many a way to reduce stress, deal with pandemic changes, or ease social interactions? Dry January, or taking the first month of the year off drinking, is a popular way to reset our relationships with alcohol. So if you've been doing it, we wanna hear from you. How's it going? Forum is next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Studies from decades ago suggested that light to moderate drinking could be good for you, like a glass of red wine a night was good for your heart. And those findings stuck around in the minds of Americans and have even guided policy. But recent studies find that any amount of alcohol can have negative impacts. Dana G. Smith is health and science writer for The New York Times, and her recent piece is called even a little alcohol can harm your health. Dana, welcome to Forum. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you. So first, what do you mean by a little alcohol?
4: Yeah, a little bit of alcohol, and this was actually surprising to me uh, in reporting this piece, is um, anything below the recommended daily limits um, that's set by the... um, uh, I want to say the Food and Drug Administration. That is wrong by the USDA. Mm. Um, so I think normally when people hear about the health consequences of alcohol, we assume that that means excessive alcohol consumption, a lot of alcohol, maybe someone who has um, an alcohol use disorder is you know dependent on alcohol. And really what the recent research is showing is that anything above the recommended daily limits, which is one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men, can actually start to negatively impact your health.
3: Mm. And even within that, didn't you find that it can also have negative impacts? It
4: can. There is some mounting research that the risk for some cancers, um, specifically esophageal cancer and breast cancer start to go up even within those recommended limits, um, as well as the risk for heart disease, um, particularly with increasing um, blood
3: pressure. Hmm. So why is alcohol so harmful, even in small amounts?
4: Um, Alcohol, when you drink alcohol, your liver metabolizes it into a chemical called acetaldehyde. And acetaldehyde is really, really damaging to the DNA in our cells. Um, So it damages the DNA, and then it also prevents the DNA from repairing itself. And that's how it can start to lead to tumors. Um, For breast cancer specifically, alcohol increases um, the amounts of estrogen, which is linked to breast cancer. And um, another form of DNA damage can occur um, called oxidative stress. And that is really harmful for the cells that line the blood vessels in our heart, Um, And so all of these types of damage really mount up um, to make alcohol pretty damaging uh, for our health long term.
3: Yeah, there was that also really striking November JAMA study that found that 140,000 deaths a year in the U.S. are related to alcohol. I guess one of the things that was even more surprising to me was that the majority of those deaths were caused by chronic conditions attributed to alcohol.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, that was um, really the impetus for me writing this recent article was just kind of how shocking that study was from the CDC. Um, Like you said, 140,000 deaths a year attributed to alcohol, Um, about 40% of those are from um, acute deaths. So people who are intoxicated and maybe have a car accident or a drowning or um, even violence or a homicide Um, but like you said, about 60% are due to chronic conditions. So it's really showing that even just a little bit, you know, every day kind of built up over time can really take a a really damaging effect on our health. Um, the number one cause of those chronic conditions was alcoholic liver disease. Uh, that was about 20,000 deaths a year. And then, um, cancer and heart diseases were also, uh, up there with, you know, a lot of alcohol related deaths, unfortunately.
3: Yeah, and that CDC study in Jama also talked about how it was working-age Americans who struggled with this the most, like Americans aged 20 to 64.
4: Right, a lot of these conditions we think of as, you know, affecting us when we get older, you know, after we're 60 or 70, um, but we start to see the effects of alcohol consumption pretty early on, you know, especially in people who are drinking, you know, well over those recommended limits that, you know, even in your 20s and especially your 30s and 40s, um, you know, there are thousands of deaths a year in people those ages uh, from alcohol.
3: So how is it then, given all of this, that we had study results from like the 90s that said alcohol was good for you in small amounts?
4: Yeah, it's it's been really confusing. You know, um, there's a, a lot of flip-flopping and this happens a lot in any diet research to be Frank, you know, any, you know, we've all seen headlines about coffee saying it's good for us. It's bad for us. Same thing with eggs. You know, it's just really hard to do a large observational study to get meaningful data on something that, that is so common. Um, so I think the current consensus is that the thought that alcohol was beneficial for us, that it was healthy for our hearts, um, was really an artifact, uh, in the data. So, um, you know, they conduct these studies by having, you know, thousands and thousands of people asking them how much they drink and then looking at their health consequences later in life. And generally it was found that people who drink a little bit of alcohol, you know, within those recommended limits tended to live longer and um, seemed to, to be healthier than people who didn't drink at all. So, you know, a lot of alcohol uh, manufacturers and, you know, the rest of the public kind of jumped on that thinking, Oh, great. You know, one glass of wine or one beer a night is actually healthy for me. You know, I I can justify this habit and what researchers now think they've been able to do um, a little bit uh, more rigorous research design where they're randomizing people based on their genetics. Um, So it's a, a new type of research study that has come out in the last couple of years that we think is a little bit more accurate. So, um, we're looking at how me- how much people drink, but we're randomizing them not based on how much they actually drink, but based on what their genes say they likely drink. Um, and from that, we can see that even a little bit of alcohol is actually um, bad for people's health. it's It's no longer thought to be beneficial. It's actually causing um, damage potentially, or, you know, increasing blood pressure related to heart disease. And what the consensus now is is that in those early studies, it was actually other healthy, lifestyle behaviors that people had um, that were kind of masking the effect of alcohol. Or people who drink a little bit are more likely to exercise. They're less likely to smoke. They're more likely to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. And actually those other healthy habits were what were improving their health, not the alcohol.
3: Well, there was a piece of good news uh, in your article that when people stop drinking even just a little bit, that it can have some significant positive impacts.
4: Absolutely, there is um, research out of Australia that women who—it's um, one of the few studies that I've seen recently that actually you know tested uh, the amount of alcohol people drink. You know, asked people to drink a lot, to drink a little bit, and then to not drink at all. And you can see that even cutting back from a moderate amount of alcohol to a, a low amount um, was beneficial. You know, their blood pressure dropped. And there's research out of the UK that. People who participate in dry January who stop drinking for a month, they have weight loss, they have um, better sleep, their blood pressure goes down. So we really see, start to see um, the benefits of cutting back or abstaining pretty pretty dramatically and, and pretty quickly.
3: Yeah. How helpful is taking a whole month off like a dry January? You say that it has these great uh, potential impacts on blood, pl- blood pressure and so on, but it sounds like you know, the, the fear that you'll be craving that drink and dying for one come February isn't necessarily the case.
4: Yeah, I think this was really heartening. Um, Again, in the UK, they looked at people who had participated in a dry January and then followed them for about six months afterwards. And they found that, you know, even though most people started drinking again, they drank less than they did before. So instead of drinking four days a week, they drank three days a week, a, a week, and they drank a little bit less on each occasion. Um, so it looks like the, you know, the benefits of doing a dry January makes you really kind of reassess your relationship to alcohol, maybe see Mm. that you don't need it quite as much as you thought you did. And so you can cut back for the rest of the year. And that, um, you know, kind of so-called rebound effect that you mentioned only happened in about 10% of people. And those are people who really drank a lot before the dry January. And so they might've actually had an alcohol problem or an alcohol use disorder. Um, so it was, yeah, only about 10% of people who took part in dry January, had that rebound where they really seemed to be craving a drink at the end of it. But for most people, it seemed to improve their health of the rest of the year.
3: Well, let me ask our listeners if they've been doing dry January. And are you experiencing some of the benefits that uh, Dana has been talking about with regard to abstaining for a month. Um, You can reach Forum by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at kqedforum, or by calling 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. What effects have you noticed by cutting back on alcohol? Do you think you'll keep abstaining or cutting back if you did dry January beyond this month? And through this process, I am curious what you did find hardest or what situations were hardest Mm -hmm. not to drink. One of the things that I also was struck by, Dana, is that none of the experts you spoke to called for abstaining completely unless maybe you do have an alcohol use disorder or other condition.
4: Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. You know, I wanted to ask all the experts about that, you know, given that the risk can start to increase um, even at small amounts, you know, should we just not drink at all? Um, And even Dr. George Koob, who's the director of the national Institute on alcohol abuse and alcoholism said, frankly, no, you know um, you know, there are people who should not drink women who are pregnant um, and people who have a problem with alcohol. Um, But for most of us just staying within those recommended um, daily limits is is okay you know your risk can go up a little bit but it's not going up a huge amount and you know for some of these cancers for example the risk of you developing esophageal cancer is very low overall so a small increase in your risk um, does not mean that you're actually going to get the the condition the disease it's actually still a a low risk overall um you know dr koop said this great thing that you know we've tried prohibition and it didn't work so you know we're not going to outlaw alcohol no one's saying that you have to stop drinking completely But just be more aware of it and try to cut back a little bit and you can actually have a lot of benefits for your health.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. It's this idea that, you know, ultimately, the cost benefit of telling somebody to abstain, which feels like a can feel like a really hard thing, especially in our culture, where it is so much a part of the way that we interact in this country, uh, in a lot of ways that, that that can actually Encourage and inspire more people to cut back. I do want to ask you one thing that I understand, which is that you waited to release your piece, Even a Little Alcohol Can Harm Your Health, until after the holidays. <laughs> what was behind that? We just have 30 seconds.
4: That's true. Um, we initially thought about running it, you know, the, the initial study, the JAMA paper that you mentioned came out in November. So we thought about running it around the holidays when people do have an uptick in their drinking. Um, we ultimately decided to hold it until January when people are going through dry, dry January. But a colleague of mine, um, on the well desk at the New York times, Danny Bloom had a great article in December, um, about heart health. Uh, there's a condition called holiday heart that doctors know happens around Christmas time when people increase mm. their alcohol intake and they can actually lead to atrial fibrillation, another heart condition, uh, linked to alcohol.
3: Well, Dana, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Dana Smith of the New York Times on alcohol. Stay with us. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow, the mass shooting at a Monterey Park ballroom. What should have been a weekend of joy and celebration for the Monterey Park community turned into a massacre that claimed 10 lives and wounded 10 more. We learn about the victims and hear from you. How are you absorbing the tragedy? What questions or concerns is it bringing up for you? You can leave a voicemail at 415-553-3300 or you can email forum at kqed.org. Today we're looking at how even small reductions in the way we consume alcohol can have big benefits, and we were joined earlier by Dana Smith, whose piece "Even a Little Alcohol Can Calm Your Health" inspired today's segment. And we asked you, our listeners, to tell us: Have you been trying those small reductions, or even doing Dry January? If you've been doing Dry January, how's it going? What effects have you noticed? Do you think you'll keep abstaining or cutting back beyond January? What were some of the hardest situations to cut back? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. Call us at 866-733-6786. And some of you, our listeners, have already been writing in. Donna writes, my dry January is going very well. I am sleeping so much better. BJ writes, one day at a time. I am 11,081 days sober, 30 years, four months, two days but who's counting? That's awesome, VJ. I'm going to bring into the conversation now Keith Humphreys, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford School of Medicine. Keith Humphreys, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Glad to be here.
3: Also, tawhid Zaman is with us, associate professor of psychiatry who leads the addiction psychiatry training program at UCSF. tawhid Zaman, glad to have you on as well.
5: Glad to be here. Thank you.
3: So, so Keith, I want to start with you because I actually was um, struck by the fact that you have advised a charity that is credited with starting dry January. And just before the break, we were talking with Dana about the benefits of it. Can you talk a little bit about your takeaways and, and your thoughts about how it has really taken off?
2: Yeah, sure. So I do a lot of work in in Great Britain, and uh, this is where Dry January really took off with different charities like Alcohol Health Alliance, which I've advised over the years. And it was particularly useful there. Britain is a heavy drinking society and drinking is kind of made automatic. Uh, You know, almost everybody does it. You don't ever need a reason to drink. You need a reason to not drink. You have to, if you don't, if you turn down a drink, they'll say, why aren't you drinking? And what Dry January does is it it gives people a time out to just reestablish, is this something I actually want to do that I want to make an automatic reflexive behavior that I don't think about? Or or do I want to reflect on it and say in the long term, do I want to be doing this every day or almost every day? And so I think it was perfectly matched to that culture. Ours is a bit different. We do have a lot of people who don't drink in America. We are a bit different than, than Europe. But nonetheless, we do have people here where it's automatic, you know, come home, flip on the TV and have a beer. And, uh, you know, if you get into that habit any given day, it doesn't do anything. But uh, over a year or two years or five years, it can have an effect on your health. So you might want to, you know, think it through. And dry January is is a good time to do that.
3: Hmm. Well, let me go to caller Alana in Berkeley. Hi, Alana.
6: Hi there. Thanks for having me. Um, I just wanted to share um, some dry January experience in the past where I completely abstained. And it was, of course, very successful. I enjoyed a lot of the benefits that you've been discussing, better sleep, weight loss. Um, But it is also limiting, obviously. And what I decided to do this year that's a little different is um, I just decided that I wasn't going to drink at home and I wasn't going to drink to relax at the end of the day, but rather I was going to drink for joy and when I was experiencing a joyous occasion with friends. Mm. Um, and that's really just cut down my alcohol use so significantly that I've had a total of you know, three alcoholic drinks in this month so far. They were all, you know, away from home celebrating, you know, a friend's birthday or, you know, a, a rare date night with my husband. Um, and I've lost seven pounds. I still feel great, you know, that it, maybe it doesn't have to be all or nothing, you know. Um, but I think that this is the sort of lifestyle I might be able to keep up. And maybe just not having that drink at home is is what could be helpful to people who Um, You know, we're moderate drinkers and are wanting to drink even less than that.
3: Mm. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. Keith Humphries, I'd love to get your your thoughts on what Alana just said in terms of the benefits of a dry ish January and also how Alana thought about drinking for joy.
2: Yeah, I love it. Uh, You know, I love the fact that Alana worked out consciously what works for her and what maximizes her well-being, and clearly it's working. And if Dry January does that for people, that's terrific. The ambition is not at all to convert people into lifetime abstainers unless they decide in in their month that that's what they've concluded. But making, you know, careful decisions about when and where and when do I like it and when it's just something I'm you know, I'm doing automatically that I'm gonna regret later. That to me is a great use of, of, of this month.
3: Mm. And Doctor Tawid Zaman, the the benefits, the health impacts of even a dry ish January are still significant.
5: They re- they really are. We know that there is a dose-dependent relationship between alcohol and so many different health outcomes. So that means the lower the dose of alcohol someone is taking in over time, the less likely they might be to develop any of those conditions that we talked about. So everything from the cardiac illnesses like hypertension, health failure, stroke, all of the cancers that Dana mentioned, and certainly liver disease. All of those have a dose dependent relationship with alcohol. So I'm a, I'm a huge supporter of folks uh, cutting down uh, as much as they're able.
3: One of the studies that Dana talked about found that about 10%, I guess, ended up kind of making up for lost time and people drank even more in the following month. What does that indicate, Dr. Zaman?
5: The fact that such a large number of people were actually able to continue to abstain is actually what's most surprising to me. Hmm. And so I think that many people, you know, do experience this reset of their relationship with alcohol. I think dry January really is an opportunity for someone to kind of step back. And to think about, okay, am I kind of using alcohol in a way that I don't really like, you know, am I using it to cope with certain feelings or cope with certain situations, is it becoming a bit of a crutch, or is it causing some actual difficulties in my life, you know, so We know that the kind of most basic definition of an addiction is use despite consequences. And so if someone is drinking and it make it, it makes them feel sick or harms their relationship or affects their ability to work or go to school, et cetera then they might have a problem. So for me, it's really remarkable that people are able to use this month and really kind of reflect in that way. And that actually is a surprising number of people are able to maintain it uh, kind of throughout the year.
3: Yeah. Keith, do you want to say a word about Americans on the whole drinking a lot more in the last few years? There have been some studies that have borne that out.
2: Yes, that's right. Even though we do have uh, more people than most countries probably do to the fact that we're a more religious country, who who have never drank at all, American consumption overall is actually gone up uh, pretty high. It's it's higher than it's been. In over 20 years, uh, probably because alcohol is uh, much cheaper than it used to be, Uh, you know, taxes have declined in terms of inflation. And as like any other commodity, as it gets more affordable, people consume it more. There's also been quite a bit of effort by the industry to market to women. So sort of you know, wine mom culture was an industry creation uh, because they realized women were getting more disposable income and they they weren't drinking as much. So how do you make money for that? You kind of gin up. uh, No pun intended. You you gin up a uh, a, a culture around, you know, this is what it means to be a modern woman. Have your, have your mommy juice and all that, and that also accelerated drinking. So the increases have been much higher among women than among men in the last twenty years.
3: Hmm. Well, let me go to John in San Francisco. Hi, John. You're on.
2: Good morning. It's a great, great program.
7: Uh, uh, when I quit drinking, it was a dollar for a highball. Now it's ten dollars. So uh, where, where does this guy say it's cheaper to drink uh, today? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, i have been sober for 40 years, and my three daughters are in AA. I started off trying to, you know, to, to be off alcohol for a month. Went to the Catholic Church; they had what they call a pledge card in the Catholic Church, and that lasted for 30 days, maybe. Uh, uh, in the next month, uh, I'm more than made up for it, mm. and it went on like that for uh, seven years until I uh, I found. Uh, I lost uh, just about everything. Unemployable. uh, My health was deteriorating. Uh, When I went to the hospital uh, for rehabilitation, uh, I had what they call pre-cirrhosis. The doctor said, your body may heal the pre-cirrhosis. It may not. Uh, Fortunately, it did. And now I have 41 years clean and sober, and uh, my health is great. I'm 85 years old, and uh, uh, my experience, uh, I go to an AA meeting every day this morning. I went there. We had young, girls are uh, with the same, you know, talking about uh, uh, drinking alcohol in small amounts and uh, and needing it and not being yeah. able to quit. It.
3: You know, John, so, uh, well, that's such an interesting point. And thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you were able to recover, especially liver disease. As we know, uh, Dr. Zaman is something that once it reaches a certain point can be no turning back, really. But I guess one of the things that I am wondering is, you know, based on what John's describing and what he just said about people having small amounts but feeling like they need it, how do you evaluate if this might be you or if you're bordering or have an alcohol use disorder?
5: Mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent question, and I think uh, knowing family history can actually be really powerful in those cases. So often, in addition to talking to someone about their experiences and kind of the ways they're using alcohol in their lives and whether it's getting in the way, I think it's really helpful to know a family history of alcohol or other substance use disorders. Because we know that this can partly be a genetic condition, so someone might be at more risk if it if it runs in their family. So often I'll talk to them about kind of the ways that alcohol is affecting them, I'll talk about their family history. And then one of the things that can be a bit more invisible, uh, for lack of a better word I guess, for folks uh, long term, are some of the risks of those chronic illnesses. So um, uh, the, for example, I will work with people to look at their blood pressure or their blood sugar or their weight and think about the relationship between alcohol and those conditions because those might be chronic issues that someone may not notice day to day but certainly could have long-term consequences. So I think it's kind of important to look at the entire picture there.
3: Mm. We're talking with Dr. Tawid Zaman, Associate Professor of Psychiatry, who leads the Addiction Psychiatry Training Program at UCSF and Director of the Addiction Consult and Opioid Safety San Francisco VA Medical Center is where Dr. Zaman does that. Dr. Keith Humphreys is a Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford School of Medicine, also author of the forthcoming book Addiction, a very short introduction. And we are also talking with you, our listeners, about your relationship with alcohol. If you've been cutting back on drinking and noticed any benefits, maybe you've been doing dry January. Eight six six seven three three six seven eight six is the number. Email address, forum at kqed.org. Post thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum. Kelly writes on Instagram, haven't had a drink in over five and a half years, so my dry January is going great. Yay, Kelly. Um, You know, Dr. though you have also written a piece, though, about people who may experience withdrawal if they try something like abstaining completely for a month. What is alcohol withdrawal syndrome and, and what should you be on the lookout for if you might be a candidate for experiencing that?
5: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it, it's good for people to be aware of alcohol withdrawal. I do want to mention that, really, for the vast majority of people, dry January and abstinence more generally is, is not very risky. In fact, it's, it's likely to be much more beneficial for all the reasons we've, uh, we've kind of discussed. But um, my piece was really focused on the risks for people who are daily drinkers or nearly daily drinkers. And those are the people who we think might be physiologically dependent on alcohol and uh, as a result of that particularly in the first seven to ten days after someone who drinks daily kind of stops drinking or cuts down significantly they can experience alcohol withdrawal and those symptoms really have a broad range so um, they they might be mild symptoms which really are mostly uncomfortable and relatively not medically dangerous but some people you know the minority of people can progress to have moderate or severe symptoms of alcohol withdrawal And as a physician, I think that's where I really start to worry because severe symptoms can actually include seizures, it can include delirium tremens or DTs, which folks may have heard of, and those are actually kind of life-threatening conditions that someone might need to be in the hospital for. So... That said, uh, I think, uh, particularly for folks who drink daily, uh, it's important to know that these are also treatable conditions, and that's why I want people to mm. really talk to their <laughs> to their doctor about that. And overall, I I really believe that the risks of withdrawal should not keep the vast majority of people from abstaining.
3: Treatable? How you mean with medications? <laughs>
5: Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, we certainly even mild symptoms, which are uncomfortable, can be treated with medications, you know, and these can be short term medications just to even help get through those first seven to 10 days. And then the more severe symptoms like seizures and delirium tremens, those often require kind of medications which are kind of heavy duty and require more monitoring. So um, someone might end up spending a bit of time in the ED or, you know, even be admitted overnight just to kind of help keep them safe. Hmm. But but that really evaluation that evaluation really depends on the person and how their particular withdrawal syndrome is progressing.
3: Well, Stephanie writes, this is my fourth year in a row, sixth overall, doing Sober January. One year I went for six months, another year seven months, and occasionally I take regular breaks during other months too. My skin clears up, I lose weight, I have more energy and sleep great. I save money and I don't have brain fog. For all the benefits, you would think I would just continue to stay sober. But the hardest part is always the social aspect. For people thinking about quitting, I highly recommend checking out the Stop Drinking subreddit for a great community in the book This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. Keith Humphries, I got to say that is something that I hear a lot is the social piece is probably the hardest situation to not drink in. What do you suggest around that for people who want to try to, you know, still be social but not have that pressure?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think also we can ask what can we all do to not apply that pressure. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a very interesting thing if you go to a party and you say, "Do you want to drink?" And someone says, "No," you say, "Oh, why not? Why aren't you drinking?" Which is funny because we don't ask an explanation for why R is somebody drinking, um, and you know we, we could all just stop doing that. It's really uncomfortable for people in recovery or people who have illnesses or maybe people it's a it's a, a faith commitment. They don't particularly want to you know talk about off off the top of their head with everyone they meet. So just accepting that, I think we could all we could all support each other uh, uh, th- that way for sure, um, you know and. Everyone is going to develop, I think, their own strategy of how they handle this. And I think it's just important to realize it's OK. It's your health. Ultimately, you are the one who will bear most of the consequences of that decision. So it's absolutely fine to say, you know, because I don't feel like it or, or I would just rather not and not have to elaborate and not have to apologize in any way uh, for not wanting to drink. It really shouldn't be a big issue. I can say this is one thing that is actually good about today's young people who are often dumped on. Is uh, teenagers, for example? No, they really are. I mean, you know, kids these days, well, kids these days are drinking way less than their parents. Yeah. That's something to yeah. know about kids these days. And I see that like in college, uh, you know, on a university campus, every campus in this country has some problem drinking. Um, but the young people coming in are more okay with the thought that they don't drink and they just say it and it's they're, they're cool with it. And that's something, uh, speaking as a parent, I find very encouraging.
3: Yeah, I love that reminder of the things that we can do not to pressure people. And Dr. Zaman, we're coming up on a break. But if you just have any thoughts about strategizing around social pressures to drink.
5: Absolutely. I mean, I would agree with Dr. Humphreys that people don't really owe anyone any explanation for their abstinence, but I tell people to kind of disclose what works for them. So some people just say, I'm doing dry January, others kind of put it on me, you know, they say my doctor prescribed me a medication that doesn't really mix with alcohol or, you know, I'm trying to lose weight and and some people say nothing at all. So I think the message is it's your life and your health. So, kind of share the reason that feels right to you.
3: Yeah. Listeners, if you have management strategies or ways that you, have a relationship with alcohol that you feel is healthy we'd love to hear about it 866-733-6786 the number to call twitter facebook or instagram at kqed forum is how you can reach us there email address forum at kqed.org a listener writes i've recently gotten a car and appreciate that driving gives me an easy out from drinking when out with friends at a bar it can be hard to say no otherwise especially if a friend buys a drink for me before i get there Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. After decades of confusing research suggesting too much alcohol is bad for you, but a little bit is good, it appears doctors and scientists are coalescing around the finding that even a small amount of drinking can have health impacts. We're talking about why alcohol can be so harmful, what can be done about it during a month that many try to abstain, or dry January. David writes, I wasn't a heavy drinker, but I was a regular drinker until this New Year's Day. On that day, I started a dry January with the intention of making it a dry life. I notice that my craving for alcohol has steadily diminished as the month has progressed. I now hardly ever think about drinking. I find it very useful to substitute something for alcoholic beverages. Sometimes this has been herbal tea taken in the evening when I'm trying to relax at the end of my day when I used to have a drink of vodka. Let me go to caller Fred in San Jose. Hi, Fred. You're on.
7: Thank you. I drink only about one glass of wine a week. But as a result of listening to this program, I've made up my mind to abstain completely. Hmm. What I find peculiar is that the doctors involved in this study apparently are not advocating abstaining, and I wonder why that is
3: huh thanks Fred keith humphreys your your thoughts on that it's true. No one that Dana talked to, the reporter we had on the top recommended abstaining
2: yeah well it's it's Risk information, right? You know, that's what you do with public health guidelines. We tell people, you know, this is more risky than that, or, you know, wear your seatbelt and, uh, uh, you know, exercise and all that sort of thing. But um, we try not to make completely dichotomous recommendations like your choices are abstinence or disaster, um, because that's not really true. And also because that's pretty demoralizing to people. So it's more useful advice to say, well, if you can drink less, you're going to be healthier. It's not that anyone opposes abstinence in medicine at all. It's just that insisting on it relative to all the other risks is not a great uh, a public health strategy any more than it would be to say, okay, for weight loss, everybody needs to look like a supermodel, um, you know, or, or otherwise you're not healthy. Um, that's not real life.
3: Hmm. Well, this listener writes, given the longer lives of moderate drinkers due to healthy lifestyles, can one say a healthy lifestyle sufficiently mitigates the effects of
5: alcohol?
3: Dr. Zaman, wondering about that, or are there other things that people need to
5: consider? I think that's a really great question i think kind of what adds kind of years of life and particularly good quality years of life i think is a really complex question um, i do think that uh, for folks who are thinking about kind of the effects of alcohol that were shown early kind of in the studies that you referenced about being kind of cardioprotective, you know we think that multiple things might have confounded those studies so kind of the you know it might have been exercise it might have been access to better healthcare all kinds of things but i guess i would say for those people yes Um, for some people it may kind of ameliorate the risks of uh, of alcohol longer term but we don't actually exactly know what all of those factors are though we suspect some of them and part of the reason is these are hard things to study so there have not been great randomized controlled trials, which you know really involves comparing people who drink, uh, you know, at, drink any amount at all to people who don't drink and kind of looking at the actual impact that alcohol versus abstinence has on kind of lifespan. We don't, we're not able to quantify that. So I can't provide kind of an evidence-based answer on how much, you know, for example, exercise or nutrition might balance out the the harmful effects of alcohol. Mm. So I would say it's not been well studied. um, And I would just, you know, continue to practice all the healthy habits. But part of that could also involve drinking less.
3: Well, this listener tweets, I did dry January last year, enjoying a fancy seltzer with adaptogens and CBD instead. This year, I decided I didn't need to abstain, having limited my drinking to one or two evenings a week. I absolutely agree that sleep is better without booze. Dr. Zaman, about balancing it out. So if you say you don't drink during the week, uh, you change your habits so that you only drink on the weekends, but you allow yourself, you know, more than the USRDA, right? Like two or three or more um, on a Friday, Saturday night or something like that. Is that better for you than, say, doing it regularly? Mm-hmm.
5: It can be, you know, and I think we as a field have moved away from kind of abstinence and embraced harm reduction for exactly this reason. So, you know, it might be really reasonable for someone to take that harm reduction approach and say, you know, actually, if I drink on the weekends, even if it's a bit more than kind of the the recommended uh, guidelines, you know, it doesn't have as much of an impact on my functioning or my life, you know, say I'm, you know, someone who's working during the week or you know going to school, things like that, you know, it has less of an impact on my functioning. I think that's a very reasonable harm reduction approach to to take with the majority of folks and mm. and it can look a little bit different for every single person, right? So um, I think anything that people can do to reduce the impact of alcohol on their life really should be investigated.
3: Yeah, right. but that said, my understanding is that the amount of alcohol in your system at any given time, if it's significant, can cause damage,
5: right? Absolutely, yes. So uh, because of the toxic effects of not just alcohol, but acetaldehyde, which we talked about earlier, um, the presence of those substances in the system it can do some amount of damage. So absolutely.
3: Let me go to Ahmet next. Hi, Ahmet. You're on.
5: Uh yes, I just wanted to uh
8: compliment the show. Uh, I I've heard about this uh, dry January earlier, I mean in December sometimes on NPR, I think, and I made up my mind to uh to go ahead with it. Uh, one thing um I I so I, this is my 23rd day obviously, and uh oh. one thing I sh- I mentioned that I used to uh, drink uh, heavy end uh, uh, like high end scotch and such and and, uh, you know, I, when I, when I started it, I, I started craving, but I, I actually noticed that I, I was craving for, uh, a taste of alcohol as in like a beer or something rather than the, uh, scotch whiskey itself. So I went to the supermarket, uh, Trader Joe's has some good collection of, uh, non-alcoholic beers and, uh. I got some of that and uh it turns out that I actually crave the taste of it rather than the effect of it. Oh. So I've, occasionally I have non-alcoholic beer every now and then and that just does it for me. So uh well, something I wanted to share. Thank you.
3: Yeah, glad glad to hear that and again this opportunity to kind of really understand what is it about our alcohol consumption Keith Humphreys, that makes us turn to it at times. You have touched on the cultural shifts that we're seeing that a younger generation is drinking less than previous generations and so on. I'm wondering what other changes you are noticing with regard to reduction. Like we're, we're hearing that people are, you know, you know, sober curious groups and so on are, are taking off. We're hearing about more and more variety available in stores that, that are like the, the same thing. What has stood out to you in terms of a cultural shift?
2: I see a real split actually in the population. So you have uh, younger people, teenagers, early college students, much more comfortable not drinking at all. And then, but we, when we have the midlife and late midlife group, we have some of the highest drinking we've ever seen. So there's those deaths that you you know you mentioned earlier that uh, and Dana mentioned earlier, and uh, you know deaths of despair. I think many people have heard that term, and we see that going up and up, and, and particularly in midlife. Um, and so it's almost like there's less of a middle than there used to be in, in America in, in how we handle alcohol. And, and for that reason, it, I'm really glad to see so many callers being very flexible in how they think about this. There are people who have very serious drinking problems who really do need to stop forever. And then there are lots and lots of other people who... Um, you know, may drink a bit too much, but you would never say in the, you know, in the old parlance, that's alcoholism. You would say, Oh, you're just drinking uh, to a point that's harming your health and you can cut back a bit and still drink. And that's okay. You'll be healthier. And we need to keep that flexibility because we've got very different kinds of patterns of drinking around the country and across generations.
3: So let me ask you then, what are some of the conditions that set people up for success if they are going to try cutting back significantly or abstaining, Keith?
2: So we we know a lot about this. So people who are the most likely who who drink a lot are likely to uh, you know succeed at moderate drinking are people who don't have co-occurring serious mental health problems, people who uh, have a job and some kind of social stability, you know, stable relationship. People who have an education, all more likely to succeed in becoming uh, moderate drinkers, and also people who can find a social network that will support them. Uh, and, you know, at, at the absence end, everybody knows AA, AA certainly works, but there's plenty of other social groupings where, you know, organized around health, you know, if you join a regular jogging group, if you join a, uh, a, uh, a church group, a singing group, something where drinking is not part of it and that's fun and enjoyable and you feel happy and you get connection uh, away from alcohol, that's going to make it easier for you to use alcohol less or to quit entirely than it will if you just kind of try to white knuckle it through, give up something that you enjoy, but not get any rewards and return.
3: Yeah. Karen writes, after years of overindulging, I decided to do dry January. So glad I did. I don't think I'll go back to my former habits. My sleep has improved. Anxiety is going down. I've lost five pounds and my resting heart rate has gone down. As a caller just said, I think I will only drink occasionally when enjoying an evening out and be much more mindful about it. Still trying to find more evening beverages I enjoy. Certainly we're hearing from listeners that finding a new favorite drink is a very helpful thing. Keith, I just want to ask you, and if it's okay to ask you this personal question, do you drink and and how you manage it?
2: Yeah, I do drink. um, But ever since I started advising those charities, I also do Dry January. Um, and I'll be honest, we went on vacation over New Year's Eve, so I started my dry January late, and I will continue it into February a week to make up for that. Um, but And I and I, I, what I find is the main effect of me is I tend to lose a little weight, uh, like two or three pounds. And I tried to figure out how that could be, because certainly there's calories and alcohol, but not enough to account for that. And I realized what it was is that if you put a double fudge Sunday in front of me and say, would you like this? I will say, I, I don't think so. I always need to watch my weight. But if I had a glass of wine, I'll say, sure so you know a- alcohol then becomes a trigger to um sort of drop my self control enough that then I'll eat more than I should and maybe then the next day do I really feel like getting up early to do my my walking or exercising and I don't so um you know for me uh it it's it's useful taking off those few pounds and also just uh regenerating those other health behaviors and making sure I keep consistent to them
3: yeah i I read a tip too that said savor that glass of Of wine, meaning enjoy your drink in a way that you'll feel satisfied after just one, perhaps. That's
2: good advice.
3: Again, Keith Humphreys is professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford School of Medicine. Tide Zaman is associate professor of psychiatry and leads the addiction psychiatry training program at UC San Francisco. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So Stan writes So no amount of alcohol is healthy, but it's healthy to drink within the limits of the federal guidelines. Which is it? Uh, Dr. Zaman, Stan wants something a little more clear, I think. Do you have a way to answer Stan's question? Because yeah, what we are finding is that those RDA, the recommended daily guidelines of one drink a day for women, two drinks for men are still out there.
5: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. They are out there. I mean, it really kind of depends on the data that you look at in some ways, right? Because if you look at the guidelines, you know, I think one, one incorrect way to in, to interpret that data or those guidelines is to say that well if I'm staying within those limits then I'm safe because you know those those drinks that number of drinks is safe for everyone, but we also know from kind of large global studies that even a little bit of alcohol is associated with an increase in all cause mortality so that has been borne out in you know studies that looked at alcohol across 195 countries so what i would say is this it, you know any amount of alcohol can be risky to the right person so i think someone really needs to consider their particular risks so if someone has a history of of addiction personally or in their family if they're at risk for heart disease or cancer if they have a history of problems with alcohol earlier in life, you know, and and issues like, you know, DUIs or other kind of real consequences, hmm. well, for a lot of those people, actually zero might be, you know, the safe level of alcohol yeah. to drink. But I think most people fall somewhere in between.
3: Do you agree with the nationwide call that Canada, for example, the Canadian Center on Substance Abuse and Addiction said the safest amount of alcohol to drink is none, which is a significant shift from its previous guidance.
5: That actually is true. And and, and that is actually something I talk to my patients about, you know, during our visits. Um, And now, of course, I'm not advocating abstinence for everyone all the time. And I don't kind of enforce that with my patients. But I think, you know, as a physician, I want people to have the information. And I do want them to know that the safest amount is zero, you know, yeah. and and that can apply to not just alcohol to, you know, but to really just about any other substance. So in, in that sense, it's really not that much of a surprise.
3: Well, Christy writes, I think it'll be beneficial to talk about mental health support and how available it is if people are having trouble reducing their alcohol consumption. Trauma can significantly mm-hmm. affect alcohol consumption and many people mm-hmm. self Medicaid instead of seeking mental health help. Mm -hmm. I was talking earlier, Dr. Zaman, with Keith about structural changes. But I guess the question I have is, like, is the medical system changing? Are doctors doing a good job of talking about this with their patients, for example, and also in terms of just the kind of structural supports around mental health that is needed that Mm -hmm. Christy brings up?
5: I think there's a long way to go, but there are many reasons to be optimistic. So um, it's uh, helpful to know that even though addiction psychiatry as a specialty has been around for a long time, and so has addiction medicine, addiction medicine actually became its own kind of recognized accredited medical specialty in the last few years. And I think that really reflects a broader kind of understanding in the medical community that, yes, you know, substance use disorder treatment is something that is worth doing and, and specializing in. And more and more hospitals and universities have addiction kind of experts who can can help people who have severe addictions. but. I think, very importantly, I think most people don't know, including some doctors, don't know that there are actually three FDA-approved medications, which can help people drink less or or not at all. And these medications are not new. They've been around for decades, you know, and and they're naltrexone, acamprosate, and disulfiram. Those are the three that are FDA-approved. And the reason you know people don't hear about them or kind of get uh, get access to them is that I think uh, I think most people have not heard of them and their physicians may not think about it. But I, I encourage people to ask their doctors about that, and it does not have to be an addiction specialist like me. You know, there are more people in my field kind of prescribing these medications, but any physician is actually able to prescribe them. So that's the other piece that I think is important that. I think more and more general internal medicine doctors, primary care doctors are getting comfortable prescribing some of those um, medications, which can also be a tool for someone trying to cut back or stop.
3: Hmm. Well, Jill writes, this is my fourth year. The first year was hell. I guess this is doing dry January. I felt so bad with headaches and just flu-like symptoms. I consider myself a high-functioning alcoholic. This past year, I worked on not drinking two days a week. And we'll try to increase that to three to four days. The two days alcohol-free has helped tremendously to get through January. I find that I do drink more when around friends, so I bring non-alcoholic drinks to have after one or two glasses. I belong to a dry January Facebook group, and it's nice to give and get. Helpful ideas. I think this really underscores our discussion today. But Keith, any reactions to what Jill just wrote there?
2: Yeah, that's terrific. This and so wise to seek the support of others trying to do the same thing is a really good way. Any health behavior change, having other people, uh, you know, walking alongside us it makes it easier.
3: Yeah, Donna writes, "I had a dry October. The great part was that I considered." That I didn't miss alcohol. I was able to consider behavior and habits and have a discussion with my family about those habits. I still drink, though a smaller amount and not daily. Well, Keith Humphries, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Again, Keith Humphreys' forthcoming book, Addiction, a very short introduction. Dr. Tawid Zaman, thank you as well.
5: My pleasure. Thank you. Associate Professor
3: of Psychiatry and leads the Addiction Psychiatry Training Program at UCSF. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your victories, your hardships, and your questions. Thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.